amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Winning the gold medal in Paralympics was a dream. Singing is a part of storytelling for me. I need to tell my story to the world. This is the sound of My Indian Life, the podcast exploring what it means to be young and Indian in the 21st century. We young people are being impacted by climate crisis. Find out more at the end of this podcast. This is World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Hello, I'm Rahul Tan. And coming up, we're going to head to Washington very shortly to look at attempts to bring down the soaring costs of food globally. And we're going to look ahead to what the US's inflation figures are going to mean for a global economy that could be heading towards recession. But we're going to start with this story because the conspiracy theorist Alex Jones has been ordered to pay almost a billion dollars in damages after falsely claiming that a 2012 school shooting in the US was a hoax. The family's lawyer, Chris Matei, said the historic verdict had finally found truth. For over a month in this courthouse, this jury bore witness to Alex Jones' 10-year attack on the family standing behind me. An attack that made him very rich. An attack that exploited the fears and resentments of his audience, an attack that targeted these families. Let's get more on this case now and its implications. We're joined by Elizabeth Washington, who's been follow- Elizabeth Williamson, who's been following this case for the New York Times very closely. Elizabeth, thanks so much for joining us here on the BBC World Service. Just for our listeners, can you just briefly explain who Alex Jones is and what this case specifically was about? Sure. Alex Jones runs an organization, a business called InfoWars, in which he spreads conspiracy theories to tens of millions of people, while at the same time selling products tailored to his paranoid audience, like survival gear, diet supplements for people who distrust uh, conventional medicine, um, and uh, gun paraphernalia for people who are preparing for the end of times. So for years, he spread lies that the Sandy Hook shooting was a so-called government false flag operation um, plotted by the government with the cooperation of the families in a gambit for gun control. And he simultaneously sold products while doing so. The scale of the settlement here, the, the amount that he's been ordered to pay a billion, almost a billion dollars. What you've been covering this case, were you surprised at the scale of the settlement? I was. This is a breathtaking verdict by this jury. Um, this is uh, something which will, if 
the families are able to collect it and it will be a long time, but they have said, and they said immediately after the verdict that they are determined to collect this amount, this will financially ruin InfoWars. Right now, Alex Jones is in bankruptcy court claiming that a debt of $60 million, which itself is suspect, has made him insolvent. So a judgment which will, with court costs, tip well over into the $1 billion mark will certainly destroy his empire. It will destroy his empire. Will he be able to pay it? I mean, that sort of sum. Clearly, it's there to set an example. But will those who bought the case receive that sum of money? That remains to be seen. They vow that they will um, get everything that there is to get in InfoWars and and from Alex Jones personally, because he is personally liable in this case. Um Getting that money is going to be a real endeavor for them. And whether there is actually $1 billion in InfoWars is probably not likely. Um, But I think the broader thing here is the message being sent by this jury. And that's that this growing online culture in which people who spread harmful lies that damage people's lives Um, and do it with impunity is ending. That is the family's hope. And the message here, um, they have always said, um, is more important than the actual financial settlement. As you say, though, this is an important case because of the area that it's in. Will he be able to appeal against the scale of the fine here? I am sure he will appeal. I am sure he will use every means at his disposal to avoid paying this judgment. Um, Whether he will succeed will be determined in the coming months and years. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us here on World Business Report. We will have more on that judgment against Alex Jones and the scale of the fine on business matters, which is at midnight GMT. Now, all this week here on World Business Report, we've been looking at the crucial meetings that are taking place in Washington, the IMF and the World Bank, tackling some of those global problems which economies are facing at the moment. Our business correspondent, Michelle Fleury, is at the IMF and she now joins us from Washington, D.C. Michelle, let's talk about what they've been looking at today and let's talk about an important issue, fertilisers, because... Issues with fertilizers are driving up food prices, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, you have to remember that fertilizer is a key ingredient that's used to boost soil fertility. Uh, Obviously, there are environmental concerns with the product. But again, for those who rely on it, it is a crucial ingredient in farming. And according to the World Bank, the price actually shot up 97% over the last year. And so it's becoming a growing crisis, one that uh, at the IMF World Bank annual meetings, they're trying to shine a spotlight on because they're concerned it will disproportionately impact the African continent. Uh, Here's Norway's Minister of International Development, Anna Trevenerweim, outlining the scale of the problem. We don't have that tape at the moment. Michelle, tell us what he was saying. So essentially she was saying that when you talk about uh, the crisis with food, um, high prices is one thing, right? Everyone has been talking about inflation. At the uh, edge and of the high country jobs. She was saying you can throw money. 
she was saying you could throw money at this problem to solve it. What you can't do when you don't have enough fertilizer uh, is produce more food. And so what we're starting to see is small scale farmers uh, in countries like Gambia, where they're using less fertilizer because of these high prices. And, and so people like her are warning that this could depress harvests. And that's why they're trying to sound the alarm at these meetings. And let's look at what can be done here. You know, you've been at these meetings. What are the IMF and the World Bank saying can be done to, to solve this problem? Because many countries are really going to struggle, aren't they, with that global increase in the price of food? Yeah, I mean, I think that there was huge concern about the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, supply chain disruptions. Uh, the last time these policymakers all gathered at the IMF World Bank meetings back in the spring, six months later, there was a lot more focus on specific things like fertilizer and, and the sort of sky high prices. What the World Bank is suggesting uh, is that people need to look beyond short term solutions and try and invest for the future. Uh, here's what one expert within the World Bank, uh, he was sort of saying to me that, you know, you have to worry about uh, trade, making sure that trade remains open, uh, that people don't start closing barriers and creating barriers to trade. Uh, you also need to, to make sure that you invest in innovation and making the fertilizer market more efficient, because apparently there is a lot of waste in this industry. And so that's why they need to invest in, in sort of more innovation. Our business correspondent there in North America, Michelle Fleury, has been keeping an eye on all those developments at the IMF and the World Bank. Well, the eyes of the financial world will be looking at the latest inflation figures from the world's largest economy, which, of course, will be out on Thursday. What will that mean, though, for the country's central bank, the Federal Reserve? Will it keep raising interest rates after those figures come out? And what will that mean for the dollar and the impact that's having on the global economy. Well, these are all questions I've been putting to the former vice chair of the Federal Reserve, Donald Kahn. Well, I don't have any uh, information on the incoming inflation data, but I expect that at some point here, the Fed is going to have to downshift the pace of interest rate increases. They are in a 75 basis point mode, uh, sort of a, that was completely appropriate. For the first few increases, they had gotten a bit behind the curve. But as rates get higher, they need to slow down. When you say it's, they need to slow down, is that time now? I'm not sure. I think if it's not now, it's coming soon. You've been part of that system. How did they get it so wrong when they use that term transient, when clearly inflation is not transient at the moment? To their credit. They admit they got it wrong and they've taken steps to correct the mistake they've they've made. That's the front loading of these uh, interest rate increases. I think a couple things happened. The Ukraine war is one of them that certainly have added the price pressures in the food and energy sector. I think another issue that undermined the transient story was the continuing waves of covid infections which uh, continued to disrupt the supply chains. But I think a third point is less bad luck. So we had very expansionary fiscal policy here in the U.S. in early 2021. Um, there were people at the time saying this is going to add to inflation. The Fed didn't really react. If the Fed decides not to 
slow down those rate increases. There is a real danger, isn't there, that the U.S. may have a sustained recession. Yes, and the reason they wouldn't wouldn't agree to slow down the rate increases is because inflation would have proven even more stubborn. High inflation would have proven even more stubborn and more ingrained in the fabric of wage and price setting than we anticipate. But do you have to、and、make that, a choice at some point between the two if inflation is more sustained than we think it's going to be? No, I don't think that. I don't think there is a long-term choice. I think the the Lesson of history is tolerating more inflation in order to take pressure, in order to allow、uh, higher growth, is a very short-term and short-sighted kind of trade-off. You've obviously been in those meetings in the in the Federal Reserve, the American Central Bank, when you have to make these difficult decisions. A lot of the world is looking very closely because the dollar is strengthening so much, and that is causing. A lot of problems for different countries around the world. When the Fed makes these decisions, should it be looking at the international impact of that stronger dollar? It does look at the international impact of that stronger dollar as it feeds back on the U.S. economy, particularly as it affects the U.S. But you have to、But、do what's best be- for the U.S. first, don't you? Yes, you you report to the U.S. legislature. Now, but you have to take account of all the interplay and the interactions that are happening as you do that. Last question to you: You mentioned the Bank of England. I'm sure you're keeping an eye on what's happening with the UK economy. There has been a lot of、yeah. criticism of the policies of the new Prime Minister and her Chancellor. What have you made of those policies? Well, I think the market passed judgment on those policies to suggest a vast fiscal expansion. At a time when inflation is already quite high, is putting fiscal and monetary policy very much in conflict. Is it putting、uh, the British economy at risk? Well, I think the Chancellor is going to have to come up with, and, a, and, and he says he's going to come up with something by the end of the month, showing what a more sustainable path for fiscal policy is. He needs to clarify the long-term plans and how to how the Whole thing can be more sustainable than it seemed to be when he first announced it. Do you think he'll have to change his policies? Something, something needs to happen here.、Uh, that's that's quite evident. Donna Con, there. Let's get the thoughts now. Susan Schmidt, head of public equities at State of Wisconsin's Investment Board. Susan, always a pleasure to have you on the program. We've had the Fed minutes release now. Do you think that we're getting a sense that maybe? We could see the Federal Reserve beginning in the next few months to slow down those interest rate rises. Well, I think in the next few months, possibly, I think they might taper the interest rate rises. We we hear them talking in these minutes a little bit about their concern and acknowledgement of the concerns that. Future interest rate causes rises might cause for the economy, and that's important. And investors took some comfort from that today. So I think the Fed is signaling that they are aware that the risk is shifting and that they need to be focused on the economy as well. But they're also waiting for the CPI report. That's our consumer price index is coming out tomorrow, and that is expected to show a very high year-over-year increase in prices. In fact, the highest in four decades, just about at over six and a half percent. X food and energy, and that signals inflation. That is where the Fed is focused, and that is where U.S. investors are focused, and cause the market then, despite perhaps. 
positive feelings that the Fed is paying attention to the economy to back off and close negative at the end of the day as people really are focusing on that big number that's expected tomorrow. Yeah, I think the eyes of the financial world across the globe will be looking at those <laughs> figures and what it's exactly. going to mean for interest rates and the dollar. Can I ask you, because here we are in the UK, and the UK features highly in international debate about finances at the moment. Is what's happening in the UK still affecting the markets in the US? Or do you think they've moved beyond that now and it's much more about inflation and what the Federal Reserve, the US central bank's going to do? U.S. investors tend to be very myopic. And so we're now focusing on the CPI data release tomorrow. And then earnings are starting. And we're hearing from many of our major and major banks, both commercial and investment banks, in the next week. And so I think investors now have shifted away from what's going on in the UK and are really focused back domestically as to what's happening here with the CPI. And then importantly, what these bank managements are going to say about the economy, because they're the ones who are seeing the loan pipelines, are in touch with small businesses. And those management teams typically have some very good grassroots information to impart to the markets that the market waits to hear. Susan, as always, thank you so much for joining us here on World Business Report. We've been looking at the US a lot, haven't we, in the course of this program. Let's move to India now because Baj is one of India's largest online education startups commanding a valuation of more than $22 billion. Well, it's in the news and US China and Chinese investors bet big on the company's ability to capture India's fragmented but huge private tuition market. Now, though, it's saying it's going to cut about 2,500 jobs in the next six months, the BBC's Davina Gupta, a voice we often hear from India, joins us here in the studio. Tell us a little bit about this company. A lot of our listeners won't know much about it, but it is a very important one in India. Yes, Rahul, and a lot of Indians would identify with this company because it's literally been a poster boy of startup world, uh, which has attracted big gun investors, including uh, the likes of the Tiger Global Management from the U.S., Tencent from China. And the reason is because India is a market where private tuition is in a huge demand because uh, the demand for good colleges far outstrips the supply. I mean, the government estimates that there needs to be some 35,000 new colleges uh, to keep up with the demand now. So there are competitive exams. You have thousands competing for just a few hundred seats. And children need to prepare harder and study for longer hours at private coaching centres. And that's where you have Baiju entering the market. Uh, they promise uh, a high-quality tuition at comfort of your home for as low as $180 a year. And that's a great need gap, uh, which took off, especially during the pandemic, when schools went uh, online and most of the coaching centers couldn't pivot to the online model. Um, in fact, you had the Bollywood celebrity, Shah Rukh Khan, also endorsing them at one point of time. Um, and it was a dream that was sold to many investors. Yeah, I know that many of my rallies in India, those kids, they're spending hours studying at the moment because mm -hmm. it is so competitive. You know, 90% in exams often not enough to get you into a good college. So it sounds like a great business model. Why these job cuts now? What's happened to the company? A couple of things, because now the schools that were shut have opened. You have private tuition centres, uh, which have also opened. And uh, often children feel that it's more of a personal touch at these private tuition centres. So they would go there. Um, and that's where they also want to move away from the screen model, which is hurting them. But really, it's been a case of uh, just burning a lot of money uh, to grow fast because they acquired some 20 companies and just last year they spent about 200 2.5 billion dollars um and that has 
hurt right now, um, this company. They also put in a lot of money in sales to attract customers. So you're talking fat incentives, uh, aggressive promotion policies, uh, fat incentives for their employees as well. And in May this year, uh, Rahul, they lost about $500 million, according to the company's statement, in employee bonus and promotion. They were also promoting cricket tournaments at this time, um, which has led to this company looking at uh, fall in their fortunes. There's also been accusation of mis-selling of products, which have turned off some com- uh, some sort of some customers, but Baiju denies it all. Davina, we're going to have to move on from that. I never thought we'd be in a situation where the sort of funds were seeming to be drying up in what appeared to be a very lucrative market there. But thank you for keeping an eye on that story for us. Malaysia's 97-year-old former leader, Mate Mohamed, has announced that he will defend his seat in the general elections expected next month. So is this a sign that we value age in our leaders? And how does our perception of someone's age dictate our view of them? Well, I'm joined by Will Harvey, who's the Professor of Leadership at the University of Bristol. Will, thanks for joining us. I'm not going to ask you how old you are, and hopefully you won't ask me how old I am. But when it comes to leadership, Will, is age a factor? Because, you know, we're talking here about Martin Mohammed, Joe Biden, of course, President of the US. Donald Trump wasn't exactly in the flush of youth either. So is experience a quality we value? Hi there. Yeah, I think it definitely is a factor that a lot of people see as a, a proxy for competence. I think the research in leadership is somewhat inconclusive, though. Certainly we find in Eastern cultures, there tends to be a preponderance to prefer people of an older age, whereas in Western cultures, there tends to be a preponderance uh, of younger leaders, even when you account for demographics and structures. Um, but definitely, I think in times of uncertainty, uh, people tend to prefer people with um, greater experience, which often uh, is obviously linked to age. Can I, can I talk about the US? Because the US had a very young president in Barack Obama, didn't they? But since then, because we've had Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden, does that reflect a change in the US culture when it comes to age? I think there are there are a few things going on and, and it's certainly not linear. So it doesn't mean that just because you've ha- had one person of an older age, you're suddenly going to have more and more. It tends to oscillate between sort of older and younger. But I think I think there are a, a few dynamics going on. I mean, one of which is it's not just in politics that this is going on. So, you know, if, if you look at prominent leaders in business, particularly in the tech sector in, in the United States, you've got a lot of young leaders, you know, going back to... You know, people like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, um, obviously people like Mark Zuckerberg and uh, Elon Musk are, are prominent examples today. And, you know, if you think about the, the types of businesses they're running and, and the scale of them, you know, they're, they're very young, really, to be to be running those. So, so that can also influence dynamics at a, uh, at a political level. But obviously, at the moment, particularly in the US, you know, there, there is a preference for age. Let's wait and see what the next election brings. Yeah, let's wait and see for that. I suppose you look at a tech sector, you look at a gaming sector, and you, you see those as younger sectors. So it's natural they'll have younger leaders. In more traditional businesses, is it still older leaders? To some extent, yes. I mean, certainly uh, my research on reputation talks about sort of the, the grey hair effect, where often um, uh, consultants, you know, uh, uh, are the preference for consultants and, uh, and other forms of leaders is often for that grey hair, that experience, and clients want that. 
Um, but you have to remember the social media impact as well, which, you know, clearly, you know, social media platforms are the tech sector, but they influence all facets of, of business and society. And, and that side of things has a much younger uh, effect. And, and, and the other, I think, really interesting aspect is coming out of COVID, where we've had a strong reliance on technology. I think that's put a strong emphasis on sort of cultural intelligence, emotional intelligence, social intelligence. Many of those characteristics are often seen as relating to age as well. So that potentially, although people are sort of spending much more time engaging with technology, which would associate Mm. with young people, those kinds of skills that I just described are much more associated with older people. So there's quite a complex set of dynamics going on. Professor Will Harvey, thanks for explaining that complex set of dynamics for us. Let's end by going to Florida now, which is still counting the cost of Hurricane Ian. Some estimates say it could be up to... $40 billion. Well, how's that going to impact on its lucrative housing sector? Ken Johnson is a real estate economist at Florida Atlantic State University and a former broker. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. That that insurance problem, how big a problem is it after the likes of Hurricane Ian hit the state? Well, this has been an ongoing problem, but it's not as dramatic as most think related to the storm in particular. So the strikes have occurred pretty regularly in the last five or six years, all along all along the Atlantic seaboard and up into the Gulf Coast, and it just doesn't have a significant impact on home prices. People want to move to warmer climes, uh, salt water, prospering economy. So, but, but how much is how much more is their insurance costing now than maybe it did five years ago? Oh, we're at least double what we were. But that's when when you look at the relative cost of housing, say between New York and Florida, though, even with the more expensive insurance, it's less expensive to be in Florida than in New York. Okay, what about housing? We're talking about that, but what about if you're running a business because your insurance costs doubling? That's going to affect your ability to generate profits, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's a definite slowdown, but this is something we've worked through before. The state is actually stepping up and starting to act as a reinsurer, which is really good. I don't, I'm not aware of any other state that does that. Explain how that and, works, because not, a lot of people sure. won't have heard of that. Sure. So reinsurance is just insurance for the insurance companies. So you have a capital balance, and you're hoping to be able to pay out all claims. That's what anybody really wants as as an insured is the ability to, to have claim, affordable, affordable policies that the claims will be paid. However, you, a particular insurance company might run out of capital, and that insurance is there. The reinsurer is there to provide that extra capital. So it's insurance for the insurers. Will we have some insurance companies now saying they just won't insure housing and businesses in Florida? I think that's more dri- – yes, we will, and I think that's more driven not by our ratings currently, but we do have what's called an, an assignment uh, policy for insurance where the contractor can take you as an assigned due to damages, and it creates a lot of legal uh, cost fees, slowdown in time. But, I, again, this is a problem we've worked through before with prior hurricanes, prior housing crises. I don't think it's going to upset the housing market here. That's not the biggest worry here. Just very briefly, what is the biggest worry economically, do you think? The biggest worry is that we can't build property fast enough here with, to catch the people that are coming in. So we have more of a, we have a, a pricing 
bubble, if you will. I, I hesitate to use that term. But it's being driven by the fact that we're just not building fast enough to catch the incoming population. So oddly, our prices will be buoyed because we don't have enough units. Ken, thank you very much for joining us and explaining the impact there of the hurricane on the insurance market when it comes to property in Florida. That is it for this edition of World Business Report. This is the BBC World Service, where Celia Hatton tells the story of China's leader. It's got the world's biggest population, but over the last decade, political power has settled around one man, Xi Jinping. He controls everything. How did Xi Jinping do it? How did he pull off one of the greatest power heists we've seen in modern history? Who is Xi Jinping? Saturday at 11 GMT. In half an hour, the story of an untold legend. Join me, Renee Montgomery, on my mission to discover more about one amazing woman, Miss Aura Washington. That's in half an hour, after the newsroom. This is the BBC World Service, the world's radio station. Hey there, everyone. It's Kalki Kekla here, host of My Indian Life, the podcast all about being young and Indian in the 21st century. And I'm excited to tell you that I'm back for a brand new season. I am meeting more extraordinary people from every corner of India as they share their lives and amazing stories with me. Stories that are sometimes raw. So many of our elders were denied the opportunity, even though they are deserving, just because of their caste, just because of where they come from. Often uplifting. Because of you, we didn't give up and I'm not giving up. Even if one person is inspired, that is the real success for me. But always compelling. We are evicted from that place for extractive developmental projects. Our land is taken away. Our forest, we are not able to access it. That's My Indian Life from the BBC World Service. Season 3 is available now. Just search for My Indian Life wherever you found this podcast. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job, it's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.